The peace of Christ be with you. Give yourselves a few deep breaths to be settled into this place and gathered into the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sisters and brothers, let us worship the living God. feel the same way. <laughs> what am I saying? Okay. Please rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. We are the loved and those who feel unloved. We are the righteous and those who have not always been upright. All of us carry the desire for your holiness, O God. Let us come before our God in honesty and hope. Let us worship as sisters and brothers in Christ.
You may be seated. Welcome. Welcome to worship here at Westminster. If you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. I do invite you after worship out to our patio area for coffee and tea and snacks, and especially a chance to get to know each other just a little better. If you're sitting here in the middle during our offering, if you take that red pad, sign it, pass it down, pass it back. That way you can greet each other by name after worship, and if you're visiting, it helps us to better connect with you. Will you join me now in our community prayer? It's printed in our bulletin. Let us pray. Bless us, O God, with your comforting and challenging love. Comfort us that we might know it is safe to be open with you. Challenge us that we might reflect on our own life and be open to change. As we recognize our own faults, grant that we would be gracious with others whose failures have let us down. Love us into being loving people. Amen. Our prayers continue in quiet. Friends, know that God has promised to be known to us. God has promised to love us and to forgive us. In Christ, we have been set free. We have been made new. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'd now like to invite any of the kids who are worshiping with us to come join Jeff here at the front. tell you something about myself, but first, I want to tell you a kind of a special word for today, and that is forgiveness. Starts with the letter F. F, forgiveness. And forgiveness is kind of this idea of saying sorry. And sometimes that's hard for me, because I get really competitive sometimes. Like you, you don't like losing, right? We must kill and destroy. I mean, sorry, no, no, we forgive, we forgive. Right. You know, there are some things that make me really competitive. And one of them, if you ever wonder what we keep back here, is dodgeball makes me really competitive. And where sometimes I play dodgeball, and you, how many of you play dodgeball? It's a ton of fun. And you're playing, and there are balls coming, and people are throwing them at you, and you know what the worst part is? Is when you get out. Is when you're looking over here, and you throw it, and someone hits you right there. From the other side, think, oh, man, I didn't even see it coming. And then what do you want to do? You want to... Headshots don't count. That's correct. Back in the... In the... Yeah, you got to hit him in the chest. In the 80s, they counted double, I think. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah, we're not in the 80s anymore. We're not. The clothes make you feel that way sometimes. But, uh, yeah. 
And so that would make me really upset, and I would just want to get that person back. You know what else gets, makes me competitive? What else we keep in the pulpit back here? Swords and playing tag. It's a pool noodle, but it's actually a lightsaber. If you were here, sometimes we have a thing here called Parents' Night Out where our teenagers give free child care. And so what we did for that night, which was a lot of fun, we had a craft where we made uh, lightsabers. And then we chased each other around and played tag with our lightsabers. And I'm playing and I'm defending myself. And then I think it was Grayson, who's not here this Sunday, I'm sorry, but he came up behind me and whacked me right in the back. And you know what? I did not feel like forgiving him. <laughs> I wanted to turn around and get it. And that's hard sometimes. Sometimes we get hit or we're playing a game or sometimes we're just trying to share our toys or share our food with people and they take things and things, people do things to us and it makes us frustrated, makes us angry. There's this guy in the Bible that some, seems like he sometimes got really angry and his name was Jonah. He is of whale fame. He is popular because of the story he had with a fish in the water. But it's funny how he ended up getting there in the first place. How did he end up being, why was he tossed off a boat to begin with? And why was he swallowed up by a fish anyway? What was Jonah's problem? I'm telling you one thing, he had kind of an anger problem. So it, sometimes we get angry, but the question is, can we forgive people? Could someone like Jonah forgive? He had personal problems, yeah. So that would be a no. Well, I can't say no. You're going to find out. So go now in peace. Go now in peace. You want me to leave these here in case you need them? We come to our time in worship where we share with each other, share our joys, share our concerns. We can be in prayer for each other and with each other. So I invite you, if you have anything to share, just to raise your hand and let us know. Okay, I'll start. Uh, Michael Hatfield's not here, but we have been praying for the wife of his nephew who lives in Australia for quite a while now. She's been battling cancer, and uh, Michael just got word that she has actually been advised to discontinue her chemotherapy and actually start palliative care. So prayers, her name is Renee, and also for Michael Hatfield and his family as they support her in this time. Elizabeth. Prayers for a friend and neighbor, Anne, who has been diagnosed with cancer and has chosen not to have treatment for that and just the rest of her journey be peaceful for her. Yeah, Joan. for some of our friends that we know through the REST program. Uh, one of them has a job and is renting a room, so prayers for his continued success. And then uh, another of our friends who is MIA, says Joan, we don't know where he is, so prayers for him. Yeah, Sandra. Uh, prayers for Thanksgiving. I have 
great. Sandra has prayers of joy that she has found a place to live. Yeah, Jen. for Sue Wilson, part of the family who has brain cancer and has started treatments recently. Absolutely. Ah, so, well, we also give thanks for their music today, Ruthie's sister and brother-in-law, um, helping us with our music and then also helping prepare for a certain wedding that is coming up very soon. Absolutely. So Tab is praying for the, his relationship with his father, who you said has, the relationship has left you perplexed. So. Yeah. So prayers for that relationship. Yeah. Let's have a few moments of quiet, and then I'll lead us in the Lord's Prayer. So let us pray together. Gracious God, you hear the prayers of your people, those spoken aloud, those prayed in the silence of our hearts, those prayers of joy and thanksgiving, those prayers of grief and sorrow. God, we give you thanks for the ways in which you walk with us when we pray. God, know that these and all our prayers are offered in the name of the one who teaches us to pray together, saying, Our This morning, and my little news was good. 
across the ground where she should stood. And the man on my seat's always, always been that way. So the uh, first scripture reading is Genesis 29, 15 to 28. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to us. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. 
Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as wife. This shows that Genesis is the genesis of the art of the deal. (laughs) And here's to that old time religion. not sure I can follow that. (laughs) The second reading comes from Paul's writing to the Romans. It's far less funny, as is often the case with Paul. But it's plenty insightful. So hear verses from Romans 8 and continue to listen for what the Spirit might possibly be saying to us. In the midst of these readings. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? God who did not withhold God's Son but gave him up for all of us, will God not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Friends, this is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. During a recent board meeting for the organization called Heartbeat, which supports the work of John Philip Newell, who you're now quite familiar with, writer and teacher of Celtic spirituality and Celtic Christianity, the group of us took a a siesta afternoon to have a prayer walk, a mini pilgrimage, if you will. And the board meeting was held in Santa Fe, and so we had a a nice trail in the desert. We attended to walk, but business ran a little longer, and the siesta was cut a little shorter. So we instead decided just to walk right through town, praying in silence, and end up at a local park where we could do some sharing. 
And as we walked in silence, we had our senses awakened to things we miss all the time, the vendors selling their wares and people taking afternoon breaks for coffee or a late lunch, tourists walking around this beautiful city. And as we came to the park, we wound our way up a trail to the top. And along the way, there were plaques with all kinds of historical information. I didn't know, maybe you did. Santa Fe is the oldest capital city in North America. Did you know that? All kinds of interesting pieces. And we got near the top, and we we passed this, this large cross standing there on the hilltop above the city. And then found our way to a tree, a nice shady spot where we could get out of the hot sun and share what had emerged for us during our our quiet prayer. And it's amazing what will come up if you just set a little side a time to listen to God and listen to your own life. I bet we didn't walk 15 or 20 minutes, and yet the things people shared. There were about seven or eight of us who took this walk, and out of those seven or eight, three people... um, shared a need for a career change. One person acknowledged that it was on that walk that he realized it was time for him to retire. Uh, Others shared joyous things happening in their life. There was celebration at just the experience of walking together again. Some of us had walked years before in Spain together on pilgrimage, and to be together in that form was moving. And then one man, a Jew, shared that when we went into the park and right before the end of our walk passed by this giant cross looming over the city, that it soured the whole experience for him, that our walk would culminate in that. Ouch. Now, this is a group that's built up a good bit of trust and does interfaith work, so it's a safe place to talk. But it was hard to hear A couple of Christians in the group actually shared similar sentiments that for them it was a little off-putting too to be in this municipal park, public park, and the highest point had a giant metal kind of domineering cross. It felt out of place in a way. But Christian discomfort with that and Jewish discomfort with that is very different. Any other religion, it's very different than being an insider in that moment, particularly if You're Jewish, I would assume. I've been doing a lot of reading this year in anticipation of the 500th anniversary of Luther's issuing his 95 Theses, which kicked off the Reformation. That anniversary is in October. And part of what you learn when you read about the Reformation is unpleasant at best. Luther himself said some horribly anti-Semitic things near the end of his life. Now, because it was near the end of his life, my sort of hope and probably self-delusional theory is that he was experiencing dementia. That's what I hope was happening. Because 15 years before, while he had argued for kinder treatment of the Jews by the Roman Catholic Church, uh, by the end of his life, he instead um, argued that synagogues and Jewish schools should be burned to the ground. And any rabbis who refused to stop teaching, should be threatened with death. It's the founder of your tradition. It's a difficult history. It's understandable when we look at our history 
our own histories and our collective histories, uh, why we'd want to overlook such episodes and why we tend to gloss over those things when we retell and when we teach ourselves about our past. We'd rather concentrate on the good things, and there are many good things. It's unpleasant to see some of uh, who we are, who we've been, or where we come from. It was unpleasant to have our Jewish friend tell us that the symbol that we revere and that represents love to us, for him, represented hegemony, domination, and intimidation. But if you don't look at those unpleasant things right in the face, you squander the opportunity to learn from them. And thankfully, someone in the group took that opportunity and turned to our friend and said, I want to hear more what that's like for you. Because for me, the cross is very important and it means a lot. And it clearly means something different to me and so I want to learn more. Now that was a courageous uh, comment and it, and it revealed a lot of trust in, the, uh, in his colleague because he trusted everybody could handle it. Just as it revealed a lot of trust and respect by the person who raised the concern in the first place. That kind of vulnerability, that kind of openness, of reflectiveness, that kind of acknowledgement of participation in things that have caused others suffering or even just benefiting from things that have caused others suffering, that's not supported in our society. It's not rewarded. In fact, quite the opposite. It's punished in our society. Thinking about this theme, I did some research recently on, on PR firms, and as I was going through uh, some of the materials, I came across a hypothetical case study about a, a, a non-existent oil spill off the coast of California. And this is what the firm was recommending in the case study. Quote, work to convince the public, it said, that the oil company is working in the best interest of the public and the environment, as opposed to being a self-serving company only concerned with company profits. This might include a series of commercials showing company employees and officers actively cleaning up the oil spill and saving local wildlife. Now, whether or not the company was or was not actually working in the best interests of the public or the environment, and whether or not the company was actually appropriately cleaning up the spill, didn't even enter into discussion. And that's natural, because that's not a PR firm's job. Their job is to tell the best story they can to protect the interests of their clients, right? We would all agree to that. But that's precisely the point. You slice up the responsibility thinly enough, and in the end, nobody is accountable. And then what you've created or supported is a system that essentially serves an illusion of well-being rather than the reality of well-being. That's at least done in one fashion. And wouldn't you know that I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we do the same thing. That we serve an illusion that ultimately doesn't help us grow a lick, rather than a reality which is sometimes unpleasant but invites us to all kinds of new and expanding places.
in our lives. Take the story of Jacob and Esau, which evoked laughter in both services today, because it's a ridiculous story. And yet think of the machinations we go through when we read this in a traditionally pietistic way in the church, which is what we often do. We started this story a couple of weeks ago, picking up when the two, Jacob and Esau, the brothers, are wrestling in the womb and Jacob steals his brother's birthright while they are still young. God seems to be in favor of this. And then today in the episode, Jacob is in love with Rachel. And at the last minute at the wedding, Laban, the father of Rachel, swaps the older daughter in place instead, and the trickster Jacob gets the tables turned on him, and he wakes up literally in bed with the wrong woman, with Leah. Now, so many times we read the Bible as if it's a perfect story about a perfectly puppeteering God who orchestrates everything the way it's supposed to be. Well, think of the implications of such an interpretation. What does that say about God? That Esau, who had his birthright stolen, that Leah, who must have been terribly shamed by her experience, were just necessary casualties of God's grand and beautiful plan? And even Jacob, who, uh, I mean, granted, is not a totally sympathetic figure, but is punished for quite a while for a crime that he committed as a minor, likely. And even Rachel. I mean, Jacob loved Rachel. Did Rachel love Jacob? We don't know. Seems a pretty difficult place for her to be. Like all the women, they didn't have choice in many things in that time. Maybe more importantly, what does that kind of interpretation have to teach us? that our actions don't really matter because God's controlling it all and it's all going to work out splendidly for everyone, at least everyone who's in the right camp? Or could it be there, there's another interpretation or, many, or maybe many other interpretations? And, and could it be that actually the Bible's not perfect at all? Or no, the Bible is perfect in its revealing of the imperfections of human life. And it's precisely in seeing the brokenness of the figures in that story that we see reflected to us our own brokenness. So we see in Jacob our own capacity to covet and grasp what is not ours and to take it, even if it means hurting our kin, without any thinking of the consequences for the other. Or even our capacity, like Esau, to to quickly sell off what is truly valuable for a bite to eat or a fleeting pleasure. The story perhaps is full of of tricksters, not because God is manipulating all of it, but because the world is full of tricksters. And some of whom trick only to get ahead and take what they want, and some trick because it's the best way they can figure out to protect their loved ones. And maybe the story is inviting us into a a deep place of discernment to figure out when is that kind of behavior acceptable and when is it not, if ever. Maybe it's in the, the brokenness of these figures that something happens that allows us to get to a different place. Because the Bible at its best and faith at its best is an honest look 
not a sugar-coated glance, but an honest look at how things are. Because when we take an honest look at how it really is and how we really are, what we do is we open up a space in our lives for a truer way to come in. Now, culture doesn't support that. It eschews all sense of, of failure and weakness and it invites us to cover it up with every cloak we have in our closet lest we see it or someone else sees it. And the only thing that guarantees is that we'll never learn and we'll never grow and we'll never change. Now, this is not your fault, of course. This is what we've been taught. Failure, weakness, source of shame. But Paul, like anyone who preaches the gospel, understands that sometimes you have to turn the world upside down. And so what Paul says is, no, it's precisely in your weakness that the Spirit of God comes in and comes close to you. And it's in your brokenness that Christ finds a way to you. And that's where the transformation happens. We've been taught that that's not okay that will be punished for it, in fact. And this is why you shouldn't feel guilty today if you've operated this way. This is, you're just doing what you've been taught to do, that you'll be punished. And the church has taught that. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Who is the only one, if you believe like Paul did, who is in a position to condemn? Who can condemn us? For Paul, only Christ Jesus. And not only does Christ avoid condemning us, Christ intercedes for us, advocates on our behalf, and not because we're innocent. We may or may not be. It's irrelevant to Paul. Christ intercedes for us. So despite what the world tells you, you have nothing to fear and nothing to lose by opening up to who you are and who you've been and where you come from. And in fact, you have everything to gain from it. New life, even. Charles is an Episcopal priest who told me recently, told a story that shows the kind of new life you can gain when you take an honest look at your calling, at your path in life. He uh, was serving at a church in Colorado when a woman came into his study one day off the street and the woman had been reading his blog and wanted to talk to Charles. Charles writes widely about Celtic spirituality, Celtic Christianity. And if you're not familiar with that, you can, it's typically characterized by a, a blessing-centered orientation and a commitment to non-hierarchy and, and a commitment to seeing the sacredness in, in, in all things. Now, those stand in stark contrast to a lot of manifestations of religion in the world, some Christian some outside the Christian household. She was moved by this and so wanted to know more. So she came in and met Charles. And in doing so, she said, you know, I'm a Celt, but I'm not entirely a Christian one because she hadn't felt that kind of message in the church always. Well, this, the two struck up a friendship. She owned an essential oils shop in Denver and so weekly, he would go to her shop and they'd have lunch together and they would talk. And over time, Charles acknowledged to her his own struggles with the church. The church maybe not living up to the Christ that he had devoted his life to. Well, they had kind of a, a playful 
friendship, a relationship. It wasn't, it, it wasn't romantic, if that's where your mind's going. He's gay, and she may have been partnered, I don't know. But there was no romance there, but a deep connection. And um, they had a ritual they would do. At the end of every uh, time together, she would take some of the essential oil out and put it on him, on his face somewhere. Now, that's funny, because Charles had been in an accident two years before, and had lost all sense of smell and taste. So the game was, he then had to go back to his church and get somebody to smell him and tell him what scent it was. And they kind of did this week after week. Well, one time, uh, Charles uh, went to Iona in Scotland, a little island off the coast of Scotland, where, where many Christians today go kind of as a, on a spiritual quest or pilgrimage. It's a real center of Celtic spirituality in the Western world. It was an abbey that was started in the 6th century, and it's really been reborn. So he was there spending a week with Philip Newell, and uh, during his week, they always take a midweek pilgrimage day where they walk around this teeny little island and make stops. And one of the stops was uh, down at the shore. And when you go down to the shore, what you do is you take a stone and you cast it into the ocean. And when you do, you release a burden you're carrying with you. And it was in that moment when Charles cast his stone that he realized he needed to leave the church. It wasn't because he wanted to discontinue his walk with God. It was actually because he wanted to take the next step. And the church that he'd been serving, well, in his work, his, his words had been a lot of pomp and almost no circumstance. Caught up in appearances, focused on itself, completely lost touch with the world around it, especially those in need, right around it. It was vapid to him. It was hollow. And so he threw it in the sea. And then he picked up a stone, they call a stone of new beginnings. And he started to walk toward a new life that he hadn't even imagined yet. And as he walked up the path, he looked up, And there was the woman from Colorado standing there, neither knowing that they would be across the globe encountering each other in that moment. And Charles started to weep, and they embraced. And then she took her fingers and rubbed it behind her ear, because it's the only place she had oil on her. And she anointed him. you're willing to take an honest look and put everything on the table, that's when God will find you. God will go across the world to find you when you're ready to do that. Charles left the church. He took a 50% pay cut and has given his life uh, because he's a professional fundraiser in addition to his clergy work to try to eradicate homelessness in New Mexico, where he now lives, working with the poorest of the poor. He's happier. He's more alive. I would say he's more faithful to Christ than he ever has been before. His model is the same model that Christ has given us in death, in letting go, in resurrection to new life. I asked him when he told us this story, I said, what scent was it that she, that she put on you that day? What scent was it? And he said, rose oil. I 
it's my favorite. Now, I didn't stop to say, how could it be your favorite? You can't smell. <laughs> but sometime later, it hit me. I don't know if it was on the plane ride back or sometime it hit me. That rose is the symbol of Mary, who gave birth to Christ. It's also a symbol of the crucifixion. And it might be a better symbol of the crucifixion than the cross. Maybe Jesus borrowed it from the flowers, the resurrection, the opening up in order to be lifted up and to grow. That resurrection is available to each of you and to all of us now, not just on the day of your death, but in this moment now. And it will come with haste if you just take an honest look. Amen. Well, my church is old and burned. Folks are poor, we've got slaves with ventures and sawdust on the floor. It's no main church, but maybe less and more. No flat screens, no cash machines, just sweet Jesus. No coffee bars, no. Just sweet. 
You may be seated. I encourage you to take a look at the announcements in your bulletin. We've got a couple of classes upcoming this Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. Um, and then also, we have a new covenant group starting in September that some of you might be interested in. There's some information about that in there. So as always, take a look and plug in, participate where it makes most sense for you. 
I invite you now to stand as you are able for our closing hymn. It's number 546. As you go from here, look around and find an unfamiliar face and introduce yourself and welcome them. It's a good habit to get into as we approach the fall and the return of the school year. And as you go from here, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and Mother of all of us, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day. Amen.